Chris Gowser here with Matt Howell. On this episode of The First Run, Matt and I are going to discuss The Batman. Matt, I've been looking forward to this one for quite a while. Matt Reeves, director of the last two Planet of the Apes films, Cloverfield, some really interesting stuff. Well, this is his take on the legendary superhero. We'll also spend a few minutes discussing Red Rocket, the latest film from Sean Baker, who has turned out some really incredible films. Tangerine, The Florida Project. Well, this time he is back with The Red Rocket. We'll tell you what's coming up on physical media, featuring your streaming and straight-to-DVD picks of the week. And then Matt and I are going to continue our countdown of our personal 50 favorite films. This week, we are doing films 40 through 31. But let's start everything off with a clip from The Batman. Mr. Wayne, you know, you really could be doing more for this city. Your family has a history of philanthropy, but as far as I can tell, you're not doing anything. If I'm elected, I want to change that. Thank you. My God. I'm going to go pay my respects. Will you wait for me? I'm going to continue this. People looking for him, Jim. Sent a couple guys to his house. Nothing. What does wife say? She hadn't heard from him. Boy, man, it sounds like something bad's happening outside that church. I wonder. I wonder what's what's going to happen there. <laughs> and I chose that clip for a particular reason. First off. That scene does feature Robert Pattinson, but he doesn't really say much of anything mm-hmm. in, in his Bruce Wayne role. And we can talk a little bit about that as well. But I got a couple questions for you, Matt. First off, more of a rhetorical question. What hath Frank Miller wrought? <laughs> I mean, all of this stuff we can trace back. Like this dark and gritty Batman, Matt, right? Goes all the way back basically to what? The Dark Knight or right. Rises? Or not? Uh, was it just The Dark Knight? No, the Dark Knight Returns. Turn, returns. Thank you. Yeah. All these damn titles, I'm conflating <laughs> everything in my head. I mean, that was basically the beginning of all of this stuff. But here we are. A character that, in our lifetimes, Matt, we've had, what, not counting the animated or Lego versions, we've had Keaton run, right? Mm-hmm. We had that 80s, 90s run, Nolan's trilogy, yeah. Affleck's version as part of the uh, Zack Snyder Justice League universe. Mm-hmm. And now we have yet another reboot with the Batman some people say, Matt, how many Batman movies do we really need? And then you watch something like The Batman, and maybe you think, you know what, maybe we needed one more. Right. So my question for you, Matt, The Batman, great Batman film or greatest Batman film? Um, yeah, I don't think I'm ashamed to say it. I think this might be the greatest uh, Batman film we've gotten to date. Um, and I will say to date, I think this thing strikes the right amount of tone the kind of gritty hopelessness that you get as you know the a newly formed batman or early in his career batman i love that we get more of a detective batman um the necessary just like a fighter batman and um it keeps it pretty street level as a street level as something can be with 
crazed uh, serial killer slash supervillains and a guy who dresses up like a bat and beats people to half to death. It's pretty close, and I really enjoyed it. It's not perfect. There are some flaws, but I think it's the best we've gotten so far. I'm inclined to agree with you, but first, let's level set. What happens in The Batman? What is a quick synopsis of the plot? Sure. So... Um, I was able to gather that he, that Batman's been around for about two years. Um, yep. He's still a really um, new and generally unknown quantity. He's got the trust of, of Lieutenant Gordon at this point, but basically nobody else on the Gotham PD and Gotham citizens themselves are almost as afraid of him as the criminals are. He investigates some murders of uh, high-profile public figures, and at each crime scene is left a riddle that... Uh, he has to solve and leads him further down the path of possibly catching this person or at least identifying who it is. There you go. So that's interesting too. One thing that always kind of bothered me about Christopher Nolan's trilogy. Now, I don't, I'm not going to sit here and just bash that film. All right, mm-hmm. I'm not going to do that. But I will say there's few things in there that were kind of movie contrivances that Nolan was really focused on kind of hitting all of these points, particularly like with Lieutenant Gordon, mm-hmm. right? He goes from lieutenant to commissioner. In right. the Dark Knight, right. you know, and there's a lot of weird things that happen in that film. And I think why this film is so successful is that this, for me, is the densest, I think, most fully, and I, and I mean that in a good way, just how focused that Reeves is on building this world. It's very immersive, and I think it's the most fully realized take on the character and possibly of a comic movie, comic book movie I've ever seen. Right, and I think why Reeves is so successful is that he melds this kind of '70s era auteur filmmaking mm-hmm. with kind of these modern sensibilities. You're not going to see, and I'm, I'm going to try not to do this, Matt, but you're not going to see the kind of Marvel stuff, the MCU stuff you're used to in this. Or this is an mm-hmm. entirely different genre, and I think this currently represents, I think, the pinnacle of the franchise when it comes to comic book movies. Okay. I think this is the best that they can be as kind of an artistic expression. This isn't kind of like content like the MCU films are. I think mm. this is more of a artistic representation of a comic book film. And I just, there are so many interesting, like, let me put it this way. I think this is the film the Joker tried to be, that it was okay. supposed to be. Right, I think this is what he was trying to do. This is what that is, and there are so many really fascinating decisions uh, that Reeves makes in this film. And now, too, let's talk about Pattinson's Batman. Mm-hmm. I think some of this has to do with Reeves as well. I think this is the best introduction of Batman I have seen on screen. That subway or train fight mm-hmm. when he—I love how they set everything up first. The the addition of the narration kind of helps add the film noir thing that they're going for. Mm -hmm. When Batman first comes out of the shadows to challenge that gang, right? And then the opening narration, like I said, too, where he's not in the shadows, he is the shadows. And all the criminals are always looking around, terrified that he's somewhere there, you know, about to take them out. But the slow walk, Matt, and then the Foley work in this film is exceptional as well, where they they add a little heft to his steps. His subtle turns, like I think I even may have tweeted out or I sent a text to a friend of mine too about it. Like that scene in the end when he's fighting everybody on the catwalk. Yeah. And he does that He does that turn to the left to the camera. Mm-hmm. Like all these great little moments. But I want to also focus on his 
this is going to sound weird, but his eye work, Pattinson's use of his eyes in this film is really, it portrays so much emotion at times because what's so great about it is that not only is he just focused and determined and obsessed, but then he has these moments like with the orphaned kid. Well, it's not orphaned, I guess, right? But mm-hmm. with the kid who lost his father. And he has these, just, there's this stillness and vulnerability as well. And he does this all with his eyes. And I think a big part of that, too, is that they've matched the color from the cowl to the makeup that covers his eyes. Mm-hmm. So everything kind of blends together. So his eyes pop even a little bit more. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the kind of thing I'm talking about with just the intense attention to detail that makes this film so successful as it is. So let me go ahead. I've talked for a while now. What are your thoughts on Pattinson? I know I'm probably being overly yeah, uh, so, fanboyish. So, yeah, so I would definitely say your bias is showing on this one. I think okay. you are correct. I would hesitate to say it's the pinnacle of what a comic book movie could be. I think it's the pinnacle of what a Batman movie could be because that's what Batman is supposed to be or this kind of stories where expected to get like his well let me let me challenge you on that maybe i appreciate what you're saying but my challenge to you would be not so much that it's a pinnacle of the comic book movie but it's it's set the bar for the genre that we've now shifted because remember the whole thing with the dcu initially was that we want to focus on director projects right we Mm -hmm. want them to bring their own unique visions to these properties Mm -hmm. and they did but unfortunately they went with Zack snyder to kind of start that and david ayer and everything they basically all fumbled those films right here we see it and it is a smashing success and i think what it is is they've been able to elevate i think the character and the art form to another level now it could be done differently like in yeah. the MCU films. Mm-hmm. I don't cuz I don't really think any of those films have the same what's the word I'm looking for? environment, the same authenticity, the same vibrancy I think that uh that this film does. So I'm not saying I agree with you that this is the pinnacle of the Batman franchise for sure, but I think it elevates the genre to another level of just like people I think we even use the term though people dismiss it like the uh, uh what do you say e- elevated horror like, this is elevated superhero films. And I think the MCU could still do the same thing, yeah. but kind of in its own way. I agree. But I, I again, I think the part that I think we're missing here is that I think this is all not necessarily a product of Reeves, which I really, I really enjoy Reeves' work. I think this all kind of rests on what Batman as a character. You're not going to be able to do something like this with a Superman or a Wonder Woman or an Aquaman, or even, you know, a Spider-Man, anything like that, because there's a level of, you know, fantastic events that you have to kind of remove yourself from. Now, granted, there are things in Batman that are ridiculous, right? But he's kind of shying away from those kind of more ridiculous elements. And at the end of the day, it's a crazy rich dude in a suit who beats people up fighting other crazy people, right? That is not something that is entirely outside of the realm of possibility, so you're able to tell a different kind of story. You're not going to be able to tell a story about a guy who can climb up walls or a man who can fly, shoot laser beams out of his eyes, and like rip a car in half with his bare hands without bearing, like making a sweat. You're just not going to have that same kind of level of story. Those This kind of story would... I would I hesitate to say it would never work, but it would be a much different challenge than with this. I don't think so at all. I think I think part of the issue is that I don't think I'm expressing myself well. 
I think you could do Superman, not in this Matt Reeves Gotham Batman way, mm-hmm. but if you lean into the all shucks, you know, Kansas farm boy who's just trying to do the right thing, you know, and then, but you just tell a really fascinating and gripping story, you could elevate the, the genre again. I think like the first half of the uh, first Superman film does that perfectly. I guess my, ch- again, again, I guess my challenge would be how many classic stories are there really out there for some of these characters? When you say Batman, Dark Knight Returns, Court of the Owls, Long Halloween. Year one, one of my favorites. Yeah, year one. All these amazing, like when people talk about the greatest comic book, comic books runs written, those are the type of things you get. When you ask Superman, you get All-Star Superman, and then there's a huge drop-off after that, right? You say, there's Elseworlds, there's Kingdom Come, there's Red Sun, but none of that stuff's really Superman. It's subverting what Superman is. Man of Tomorrow, that's one of the big ones. But, I mean, Man of Tomorrow, again, is a much more niche thing. Like, if you said to somebody, what are the greatest comic book runs like if you're going to read a graphic novel of like some of these famous superhero comics most of the big ones even like your spider-mans or your x-men are going to have or maybe not x-men but the bulk of those i mean i would say maybe six of the top 10 are going to be batman stories and Hmm. i think that's just the way it is it's just the the method of or just what the character is and the kind of story you're able to tell with that that's interesting all right Back to Pattinson. How awesome is he? Yeah, he's really awesome in this. Um, I think he, you know, has the whole brooding thing. And um, I think it's a really interesting choice that his Bruce Wayne is not like the kind of playboy Bruce Wayne. He's still like the brooding emo kid um, that mm. you, you know, that he's basically not that different from Batman. Um, he just doesn't go around beating people up. If I have one complaint about Pattinson is that he's famous for not liking to work out so his physicality especially when he's walking around without a shirt on doesn't look like somebody that could like beat somebody half to death like he doesn't have any mass to him that's a minor nitpick but it doesn't really come up a lot but yes he's still the learning batman so you can kind of uh, ride it away with that but you're not gonna get the kind of uh batman as the ultimate badass fight scenes in this not to say that they're not good or entertaining and i didn't like them i'm just saying it's a different kind of of batman to this yeah this isn't the ben affleck yeah Mm -hmm. all masked up and that warehouse fight scene type of thing no that's true um other stuff here we want to talk about um i have some apologies to make uh too one thing and i wonder if part of it is just living in my little bubble Mm mm-hmm when I was talking about, too, I don't feel any real juice for the film. And yeah. I said there were like four seats sold for my Monday screening when we talked about it last week. Yeah. My my Monday screening ended up being basically 80% full by okay. the time uh, I actually got to see it. Maybe it's because I booked my seats so early. Yeah. But then the other thing, too, is one of the, the lifeblood of this film is something that I didn't expect. And that is Giacchino's score. Mm. Mm-hmm. That is, I had said before that all the stuff I've ever heard from him, none of it, none of it has ever really impacted me in any capacity. Right. And then he drops this banger. I mean, this score is, Matt, it's, it, and I guess it really shows how important it is to bring the composer kind of on board from the very beginning, which is what Reeves did, mm-hmm. right? And 
it fits the film so perfectly. There's this gothic romanticism for it. And it's heavier on the strings, and I think, than the prior recent films, like we've been dealing with the Zimmer stuff and the Junkie right. XL stuff for a while now. But this one, it's darker in some points and then beautiful. And But it captures so much of the film. It's one of the best, if not the best, Batman score I've ever heard. And I mean, and I'm, and I'm a huge fan of Elfman's first two scores for the Batman, you know, the 89 and the, uh, what is it, 92 film. And then, and I do enjoy the stuff from uh, Nolan's run as well. But man, I don't think anything's captured the character as much really as Giacchino's score. What were your, did it hit you at all as well? I mean, the Riddler score was fantastic. Catwoman's, I mean, everything was just perfect. Yeah, I really enjoyed the score. I especially enjoyed the kind of, I thought it was a perfect hit as far as how he was able to kind of set the mood and kind of know when to drop everything and kind of bring in that kind of blast of, of score. It never seemed at any point overdone or anything like that. It was, it was, it just added to the kind of visceral excitement of what you were seeing on screen. Yeah. I mean, initially those older, the, the Snyder films too, like we're just pounding you into auditory submission, right? right? With just these heavy drums and, and then the shrieking guitars. Now we, though we have those intense moments, uh, when there was, there's a fight scene, there's also the string. Everything kind of sweeps you up, this kind of romantic kind of thing. And I th- it's just, it's fantastic. And I cannot wait to pick this thing up. There's a weird thing where it's not really getting a CD release per se. You can buy CDs, but they're being pressed as ordered. They're not being uh, pre-manufactured. Uh, and, right. But you can buy them digitally as well. But I think I was really surprised, I said, because I had not been a fan of any of his stuff prior to that. It just never grabbed me. And a lot of people like his work, but... It just never really sat well with me. So I'm all over the place, Matt, with this thing. I really, obviously, <laughs> so, I really enjoyed it, but go ahead. Is there any criticisms that you have? Is there anything that you I didn't like about I it? I would say maybe the third act. Um, mm-hmm. This seems to be a problem for Batman films lately entirely, or maybe even superhero films in general, now that I think about it. A lot of the mm-hmm. third acts kind of are a little underwhelming. Now, I think this is... So the best Batman film probably for me is still The Dark Knight. Okay. Though the third act in that I think is just bad. It just doesn't really right. work at all. And this is, I think this is better. And I think it has some really nice moments in the third act, but it's probably the the weakest part of the film. But even then it's in weakness. It It's like a, if I were to score, I would give it like a B, B plus. Yeah. You know, yeah. well the rest of the film obviously is probably going to be in a little higher territory as you're listening to me talk. But I think I think that's it. I don't. Did you have yeah. any issues with it? Yeah, I think it does get a little shaky towards the the end. I think there are parts, and and like just like you said, overall, I think it is pretty successful. I was a little worried it was going to go a little long at being three hours, but it didn't seem like it was over long. But, yeah. but in that last hour, there are some kind of shaky bits that um, don't quite hold together, and it's like there almost feels like they're tying off plot threads just to make sure everything's kind of wrapped up for you as we move into the ending. So that part seemed a little perfunctory, but for the most part, still very good. The only other part besides Pattinson's lack of physicality, and I think he should hopefully hit the gym if they have another one Mm -hmm. of these and (laughs) do what you have to do. But I'm not sure about the kind of reveal Um, at the end, Barry Keegan's uh, character. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure. Oh, so it was Keogh. Is it Keegan? It it could be Keogh. I'm not sure, to be quite honest with you. Um, Yeah. I think he's a pretty good actor. Mm -hmm. 
but I wasn't super impressed with the little bit of glimpse that we got. It made me kind of nervous as to what the future could hold. We'll see. I don't know if they're really... Yeah, I'm not sure I want them to go in that direction for the next film either. Let's sure. maybe if you if it's this is supposed to be a trilogy, maybe you wrap things up with with that character. But right now, I right. don't know. And I, you know what? I had another weak point too. I think about which surprised me. I think it's okay, but I wasn't as interesting or as good as I thought it was going to be. And that was Andy Serkis as Alfred. Mm-hmm. I was kind of found that whole thing with him a little bit underwhelming as well. I'm not sure he just didn't have as much to do in the film, or if he. Yeah, he seems very periphery. Yeah. He seems perfunctory. He's not in it enough, I think, to make it a big impact Yeah, to really sell the relationship. I think that's exactly it. That's that's exactly it. Uh, so a couple of things I wanted to talk about. So much. Jesus Christ. All right. I don't want to lose, the th- lose track of all this stuff. Zoe Kravitz as Catwoman. Yeah. I love, too, that it came out, and I think this actually came out a while ago, it just resurfaced because of this film, that she was dismissed as an option for The Dark Knight because she was considered too urban. Uh, but one of the things I think Reeves done Reeves has done in this film, which I think is interesting too, is that her Catwoman, there's a sultriness to her character that I think the previous iteration lacked. I think probably not since Julie yeah. Newmar, probably for Catwoman, did they have any of that. I mean, this too, this is a sexy film too, Matt, in a lot of ways. Yeah. Between, not yeah. just a relationship between her and Pattinson, uh, but I think there is some real chemistry between the two of them. I some people online said they didn't see it at all, but I don't know what the hell film they're watching. But um, I think too, she is quite good in this film. Um, as she's on this quest to find out what happened to her friend and potentially get revenge on the people who have wronged her. And I think her subplot is a really fun and interesting thing to follow along with. And I think she does a fantastic job as Catwoman. Do you have any thoughts on Kravitz? Yeah, I thought she did a really solid job as Catwoman. I didn't find her distracting for the main story. And I thought that they, she was a good foil kind of to Batman, the kind of other side of the same coin mm. and how things are slightly different. I thought she was a good counterpoint and I, I really enjoyed her. I thought she was, she worked pretty, pretty well. I mean, you know, two for two for, for first run, uh, Zoe Kravitz, uh, week after week That's so right. far. <laughs> and I also want to mention too, uh, I talked earlier about Reeves's creation of this world. There's two things I want to talk about with that. So one of the things that always bothered me, again, about Nolan's trilogy is that they basically just shot in Chicago, and Chicago was Gotham. Mm-hmm. And it yeah. never really had the set dressing like, you know, uh, was a Bo Welch did in the Burton Batman films, those first two. Mm-hmm. Uh, the same thing, but with this, it does feel, again, like a fully realized Gotham. He doesn't have just right. a city stand-in. And I really, you really get a feel for the city and everything that's happening. So I think that was exceptionally well done. But... I think one of the core things about why this film works as well as it does outside of the performances, about outside of the creation of this fully realized Gotham, the characters are like in the score, it's there's this vibe and feel to the film where everything feels almost kind of at some points like dreamlike and nightmarish. And I think he accomplishes this mostly by his use. There's kind of these, I don't know if it's these filters or zoom filters, but what he does, what Reeves does often is that he will focus on one or two characters in the main, and then everything else kind of gets a little fuzzy or out of focus behind them, right? Right. And it adds this kind of air of, you know, because your dreams are like that, right? Where you you have these moments where everything's kind of tightly focused, but everything around the dream is just kind of slightly off kilter or off. And the, the film is like that in a lot of ways. There are many shots, you can just look it up in the trailer, where they'll focus on, you know, Batman, Catwoman, Lieutenant Gordon, whatever. And everything around them, though, kind of just slowly is kind of out of focus. And I think it really 
adds to the vibe that Reeves is going for. I think that's another thing that helps escalate the uh, film. Did you notice that at all? Did you feel that at all while you were watching it? I was kind of so enraptured of the following the story and seeing what was on screen. I didn't really notice it, so maybe I'll have to pay more attention on uh, second viewing. Mm. Yeah, uh, just really fun, fun stuff. I wonder if he owes any loyalties to Fincher's Zodiac. There's a lot of vibes of that in here. Not Seven. I don't know. Some people are saying Seven. I very much got a a Zodiac kind of feel from this as well. Yeah, I only got a Seven towards when they're, you know, are in the hideouts or, you know, looking, going through some of the apartments and crime scenes. I did get a bit of a Seven vibe with some Mm -hmm. of that, but that's about it. And I will say, too, how scary it is at times. Like, I don't think I could recommend. I know PG-13 is the rating and. I've always, you can kind of go ages like 10. I think you can drop down to 10 or 11 for that, but I wouldn't. Yeah. I mean, there yeah. is some heavy stuff in here, some adult stuff in here, and there's some actually good, legit scares in this thing. Mm-hmm. So I would, if you're thinking about bringing your kids to this, be wary. This could actually ha- cause them to have some nightmares. Right. Another criticism too, it's not funny. I think this is another issue of the MCUification of superhero movies. It is not, it's not funny. Yeah. I think that's, yeah. I don't think that's, that's true at all. It's not like writer's room quip funny, but yeah. there are some really perfectly placed, subtle kind of dry humors and pokes in this thing. Or I will admit, I don't know if it's just me, but I laughed out loud like three or four times watching this film, but I was the only person in the theater that did. <laughs> I don't know if it's just, I was the only one that caught the jokes. I don't know. Yeah. But yeah. Um, yeah, it is actually also surprisingly funny at times as well. Did you uh, catch any of that? No. Yes. Yeah, so? I thought. It, I mean, I thought. I mean, it's not the the main focus, no. but it does have its moments of of, le- of dry levity. I would agree. Well, let's let's. We're about a half hour in, so let's wrap this thing <laughs> up. Because <laughs> I just want to say one last thing. If you want to have a good, another good time too, is uh, look up Giacchino's, um song titles. Supposedly, he is a funny, funny guy. So all the song all right. titles are all um, puns. So okay. uh, you can check that out and have a good time with that. Matt, I think it's no surprise I'm giving the Batman an A. Yeah, I'm going to give it an A as well. Look at you. We didn't even talk about Dano's Riddler, which is terrifying and fantastic as well. And the whole kind of Bruh. dipping into the Q conspiracy type stuff as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, so mm-hmm. that only has that meta commentary on that. Then there's also just, I don't, Matt, I, again, it's, so well grounded in this kind of reality where everything in the suit and everything kind of makes sense. That's what I think I was so impressed with, just how authentic everything is. If Batman were to exist, I know Nolan tried to do this in a way, but not as successfully as Reeve does. If there was yeah. a Batman, this is basically what it would be like outside of right. that, maybe that kick-ass car. Probably one of the coolest yeah. Batmobiles we've seen as well. <laughs> so, Got a chance to see the Batman. I don't know, Matt. I got to talk about it for another 20 minutes and then we'll move on. Now, uh, it is currently playing in theaters, but it's supposed to drop on HBO Max, I think April 14th, April, at some point, oh, really? like April. Oh, it's, really? Wow, that's early. Yeah. So that's maybe really they'll push early. it back because this thing is doing exceptionally well. So I'm um, happy good. to see that. Well, good too. for them. Yeah. The Batman. There you go. All right, Matt. It's only been a half hour. Let's go ahead and then talk about what's coming up on physical media. <laughs> Uh, what are your thoughts? Feedback at thefirstrun.com. And then coming up on Physical Media this upcoming Tuesday. Get your shoes on. Bernardo will be so mad if we make him late. And I want to dance. <laughs> Bernardo's always mad. Necesito lipstick. I'm too short. I need, please... 
Please, some, some lipstick and maybe some eyeliner. The boys think I'm a kid. You are a kid, kiddo. Oh, I'm 18. I have a job. I've been taking care of puppies since I was six. Bernardo thinks I'm a baby. Who I'm not cares a... what Bernardo thinks? Gino is the only boy who counts. Oh, Gino, mi primer baile en Nueva York, and I have to go with the... The, the sangano. Hey, I, don't, I don't want nice. to. Gino is a very sweet boy. Yeah, Bernardo is a dictator. You can't take that personally. He's got to be like that. So we got to be a, a great boxer. Everyone's afraid of him, but I'm not. Anita, we're home. I can't believe that. I, think, I can't remember the last time you shut me down when we were talking about a film. Like, all right, let's go. Let's pick it up. Let's keep going. <laughs> I know. Well, so so full disclosure and first run, first run land. Um, there's going to be snow here. My daughter's going to be getting home early, which really inconveniences me because I've got <laughs> stuff to do later in the afternoon. And she's got her tutor coming and all of my timelines are moved up. So now I'm on a very condensed schedule today. <laughs> Sorry about that. We'll blow through this, folks. That's, of course, is West Side Story, which is currently available to stream on Disney+. Plus. Uh, if you get it from Best Buy, there's a steel book. Target has an art edition with two foilish prints. And there's 13 uh, making of featurettes. And then you can also pop in and just watch all the songs. I really enjoyed West Side Story, Matt. It was a lot of fun. And uh, I want to see maybe Mrs. First Run will maybe check it out this weekend on the Disney Pluses. Also coming up in physical media, the film we're going to talk about next, Red Rocket. So uh, basically includes an audio commentary with Sean Baker and Simon Rex, as well as a cinematographer, Drew Daniels. Audio commentary with film critic Kat Ellinger, and then I'm making a featurette. Matt, a movie you watched last year's Sundance, John and the Hole, is being released by IFC. It's a coming-of-age psychological thriller that plays out the unsettling reality of a kid who holds his family captive in a hole in the ground. Remember correctly, you thought it was okay. You thought there was some really interesting stuff, but overall it wasn't as successful as you'd hoped. Yeah, that's that's basically what I would say. It's it's uh, got some really disturbing and creepy moments and some very um, relatable moments at the same time, but it is it is flawed. Too bad. The Boy Behind the Door is coming out after Bobby and his best friend Kevin are kidnapped and taken to a strange house in the middle of nowhere. Bobby manages to escape, but as he starts to make a break for it, he hears Kevin screams for help and realizes he can't leave his friend behind. Includes some bloopers on that one. New to Blu-ray, Paramount is releasing The Accused. Uh, this is the one with is it, uh, Deborah Winger and um, Jodie Foster is getting okay. a Blu-ray release. Vestron is releasing Dream a Little Dream. The uh, Corey Feldman, Corey Haim, um, is, a, is it Jamie? It's not Jamie Gertz. Who's Iron Sky? Why am I blanking on who else is in that film? Dang it. That one's getting a Blu-ray release. Shot Factory is releasing Nightmare. Janet is a young student at a private school. Her nights are troubled by horrible dreams in which she sees her mother, who is in fact locked in an insane asylum, haunting her. Brand new 2K restoration of that. A new audio commentary and some new interviews as well. Cauldron is releasing Lucio Fulci's Contraband. Cigarette smugglers in Naples run the problems, Matt, with cocaine operations being set up by a rival smuggler, full of violence, including a woman's face being burned off with a blowtorch, and more. So, uh, Fulci doing what Fulci does. Brand new 4K restoration of that. Includes a CD soundtrack, some new interviews, and a new audio commentary. Cauldron is also releasing Murder in a Blue World, also known as To Love, Perhaps to Die, or Clockwork Terror. Set in the future, the story follows a nurse who tries to bring her own style of relief to people condemned to die. Her identity is a mystery, and she may not be quite what she seems. A brand new 2K restoration of the Spanish producer's cut from the negative, a newly edited archival interview, a new audio commentary, and more. Starflight, the plan that couldn't land. I think that's supposed to be plain. 
It's a TV movie from Code Red. <laughs> nice job there, Blu-ray.com. Lee Majors, Hal Linden, Lauren Hunt, and Ray Milland all star in this fictional story of the first hypersonic commercial passenger plane, which can make the flight from New York to London in mere four hours. On the maiden flight of this plane, Matt, a minor disaster occurs, resulting in the plane actually leaving the Earth's atmosphere and orbiting around the globe. I just watched that, um, was it Falling Down or Fall Down? Downfall, the uh, Boeing documentary on Netflix. Yeah. That thing's terrifying, man. <laughs> God. <laughs> Code Red is releasing Dirty O'Neill, also known as The Love Life of a Cop. Morgan Paul is Dirty O'Neill, a small-town policeman with a big-time libido. Sounds like Matt to me. Brand new 2K restoration <laughs> of that film. Kino Lorber is releasing Man's Favorite Sport, Strange Bedfellows, or Strange Bedfellows, depending on how you like to pronounce it. Farewell. And Zoot Suit featuring Edward James Olmos, Fast Charlie, the Moonbeam Rider too. Lots of stuff coming from Kino. Sandpiper Pictures is releasing It's My Party. Nick's three-year battle with AIDS is about to come to a close. Rather than face debilitation, he chose to end his life, but not before throwing the greatest farewell party of all time. Sandpiper's is also releasing the documentary from the Hughes Brothers' American Pimp. Flicker Alley is putting out The Whistle at Eaton Falls. A newly promoted plant supervisor finds himself in the position of having to announce a layoff of his fellow workers. Brand new 2K restoration of that one, as well as a bunch of new featurettes. UHD releases, Matt. I've been waiting for this one. This is from Kino. Touch of Evil, the classic film with uh, Charlton Heston, is being released. There is a 4K Blu-ray, the Dolby Vision presentation of the theatrical cut. There's a reconstructed cut in 4K as well, as well as the preview cut of the film, all getting 4K releases in the set. And then is there a UHD of the classic An American Werewolf? An American Werewolf, some people say, in London. <laughs> I'm going. I have this on Blu-ray. I don't know if I'll, I'd be upgrading to this, but this is the uh, Arrow release. So there are a bunch of special features on it including audio commentaries, making a feature edge interviews, outtakes. Just this thing is stacked. Includes a 60-page perfect bound book, double-sided fold-out poster. I mean, this is a beautiful set if you're an American Werewolf in London fan. Also, The Sword and the Sorcerer being released from Shout Factory in 4K. A new audio commentary with the director, Albert Pune, is included. And you get a 4K restoration on the Blu-ray as well. So you get a UHD and a Blu-ray. The Apartment as well is getting its 4K release. We talked about this thing last week. The Blu-ray came out last week. While your UHD is set is here. Really a wonderful little film. And then Criterion is releasing La Cirque La Rouge. The fantastic French film noir is getting its UHD release. Yesterday it had the flash sale, Matt, on Criterion. I don't know if you saw it. Oh, I did not. I picked up the Red Shoes and Citizen Kane in 4K, both of them. Oh, nice. I was looking at that Wong Kar Wai set. I just didn't want to... I have so many box sets from them I haven't even opened. So I, yeah. I didn't want to spend another $100 on another box set that, I again, I'm not going to watch for quite a while. So I have opened the Bruce Lee set, though I haven't watched that yet either. Jesus Christ. <laughs> but at least you opened there it. There you go. Steelbook release for Sonic the Hedgehog, known as the uh, bonus stage Steelbook coming out in anticipation of the sequel. Your straight-to-DVD pick of the week, Matt, is going to be Monster Python. A film crew shooting in an abandoned village uses a collection of large eggs that they find as props for the movie, only to discover, Matt, that the mother of the eggs would like to get them back. Oh. And I'm assuming it's a big-ass snake. What should we be streaming this week? So available on HBO Max, um, a fun little film that we reviewed last year, um, Free Guy, starring... I am embarrassed to admit this. I'm completely blanking on America's sweetheart Ryan Reynolds. Uh, Yeah, Ryan Reynolds. I know. I was ashamed of myself. Um, where he plays a uh, guy living in a 
uh, virtual world of a MMO. And uh, it turns out he's more than meets the eye. He's more than just a guy. And it's a fun little, it's a fun little action comedy. And I want to remind everybody too on HBO Max uh, that The Last Duel and Nightmare Alley are both available to watch right now. Yes. Two of the better films of last year. So if you haven't watched them, check it out. You know what I started watching for some reason? It was background viewing. Was The Fog, the remake. Because oh, okay. I love the original. Yeah, and how is it? I've never seen the remake. I'm about halfway or so through and it is just not good. Tom Welling and um, Maggie Grace are in this, and Selma Blair as well, but it is not good. (laughs) All right, folks, let's keep rolling here and spend a few minutes talking about Red Rocket. God damn it. I don't want to be here, all right? This is embarrassing. Well, I don't want you here You think I want to show up like this? I got my ass fucking kicked. I just need a place to crash. Why can't you be here? What does it look like, a hotel? Really? It's like that? Can you get off the property, please? What? what are you going to fucking do? Really? Oh, you want me to call the cops? I'll call the cops. Don't, don't no, I'm calling the cops. Ten, nine, eight, God. seven, faster. I'm technically off the property, so you can't call the cops because I'm on public land respecting your boundaries. Can you keep it down? Can you come over here so I don't have to project my voice, please? Ooh. Fuck. Seriously, I just need a place to crash for a couple days. What's the big deal? Mikey, go fuck yourself. Oh, you don't even know what I've been through. Oh, I- Look at my fucking face. I just was on a bus for two days. I had to walk here from the bus station. Why don't you stay with your mama? My mom's in a nursing home in LaBarque, a care home. I can't sleep there. Man, what's he going to do? Matt, Sean Baker returns, this time with Red Rocket. The story of Mikey Saber, who is a adult film star, where something's happened. And he's had to go back to Texas, which he's been away from for 17 years, his hometown of Texas City. And he's got nothing. He's got nowhere to go. He hooks back up with his estranged spouse and then meets a young woman at a donut shop who is 17 and then begins to have an interesting relationship with her with the ultimate goal of getting back in potentially to the film, adult film industry. Now, Sean Baker, Matt, has released, he's directed a couple just wonderful films. I confess I've only seen two of his other films and I've loved them both, Tangerine and The Florida Project. Mm-hmm. And he has been on this tour, Matt, of basically exploring the underbelly of America. Uh, so let me ask you, Matt, was he successful this time out as he was with the Florida Project? Have you seen the Tangerine yet? I don't think you have. I have not seen Tangerine. It's on my list of things to catch right, up But with, you but did eventually come that. around to the Florida Project and loved it. I did. So again, I another did. study of people basically on the edges of life trying to figure out what they do and do whatever they have to do to kind of survive and succeed. What are your thoughts on Red Rocket? Yeah, so I think Sean Baker definitely succeeds in showing this type of kind of fringe, um, if you want to call it underbelly of society, where these people struggle and kind of have to hustle to survive. I think where people are going to struggle, especially if they're like me coming from the Florida Project, the Florida Project has the protagonist and the point of view is from a child, right? right. So a lot of that innocence and sweetness is there even though the kind of like undesirable seedy stuff is happening in the periphery and you're left to fill in the blanks and kind of see the tragedy for what it is mikey saber and simon rex's character is front and center and he is a despicable human being and he is somebody that i've known guys like this you know who are just full of themselves and are constantly telling you these stories that 90% of them are probably mm-hmm. not true. And if they are true, then you really don't want to be hanging around with them. And they're just these horrible user people. And that's 
what this guy is. And I, from what I understand, this is more typical um, Mm -hmm. of Sean Baker's work, kind of showing you that these people exist, um, whether it's up to you to whether you kind of are managed to relate to them in any way, shape or form. You know, I think maybe Florida Project was an anomaly because of the focus on the innocence of a child, whereas that is completely missing from this. And everybody in this is just kind of slimy as you kind of go through it. Yeah, I agree with you. I think it, as you said, I agree that he successfully kind of examines the other side of these lives again. And he presents these people as they are with not much condemnation of their actions because it's not what he's interested in doing. He wants to present these people to you and tell you the story and then just basically say, what do you think? What do you think about this? Right. And what I think makes it doubly difficult in the end for me is that Sabre gets what he wants in the end. He has his golden ticket. He has tribulations. And what's funny is you actually kind of root for him in the beginning, but he's clearly an anti-hero, right? At best. And because yeah. he is just a loathsome person. And I think that too, he, but he gets his golden ticket at the end. He gets what he wants. Right. And it's just, just vile. But the problem is that this, this is what happens. You know? And Baker is just revealing it to us. And I think that's the key to the whole thing, right? And... It just, it aggravates me because it's well done. It's well made. Simon Rex, who is an adult film star in his real, air quotes, life. And a a 90s MTV DJ as well. Is just, (laughs) uh, he is just disgusting, right? And it's, he is so good in this because I I strongly dislike him as much as I do. Which I think is a testament to his performance. In fact, he just won Best Actor at the Independent Spirit Awards this past weekend. And it's an interesting, it's interesting spending so much time with somebody so distasteful, right? Somebody who's probably never done the right thing in his entire life. And uh, after that first probably 20 minutes, half hour, and this thing's like, just squeaks over two hours, which I kind of have an issue with. I think it meanders a bit too much at times, Sure, but it is still an interesting story. And though you may root for him a little bit in the beginning, as you progress, you're like, oh, this guy's just an a-hole. Sweet Christ, right? And it's just, I don't know. I also think it's interesting that Baker sets this film when he does against the 2016 election of Trump. I think there's another little subtle comment that he's making there as well. And two, there's this one scene with Lexi and Mikey where he's, She's asking him to help her maybe get her kid back. And it is just so yeah. rough. And it just leaves such a sour taste in my mouth afterwards where, man, this guy is just, I don't know. Part of me thinks I'm just getting older and I'm tired of watching movies about people who are just pieces of poo. All right. I mean, I can't empathize yeah. with this guy at yeah. all because he's grooming this yeah. young woman at this donut shop basically to yeah. exploit her, though she seems potentially open to it she's also 17 right right? and he but he he looks at her as his ticket back into the industry and it's right i don't know i'm the problem is i'm not finalized on this i think at once it's a fascinating exercise and possibly a complete swing and a miss and i can't yeah i don't know i i I, i'm not sure matt i'm not sure where it is because the morality of this film is murky if it even exists because that's not baker's intent yeah well yeah, there's no morality in this film. I mean, make no mistake, there is not a single person in this movie that is a respectable human being. I mean, maybe the donut shop owner, but I mean, she's knows this guy's bad news, but she mm-hmm. doesn't chase him away or anything. She just lets him come around. But, you know, the ex-wife and her mother, they're all kind of out to get what they can get from this guy initially. And, you know, that's what they're all about. And the kind of hangers-on and friends that he's with are... 
you know, not good people, whether they're drug dealers or they, you know, pretend that they're something that they're not um, to get sympathy and make money. And yeah, everybody in this is damaged in some way where I think Mikey takes the cake is that again, he, like you said, he doesn't really face any repercussions for any of this stuff. He has nothing but horrible intent, but he thinks it's a virtue. I think really what people are going to struggle with this is that it's not just that he's grooming this woman or this young girl, his plans for what this young girl is and all these things he's saying just to kind of execute on his plan. And like, he has no second thoughts about it at all. And that's really like the, that's really where he kind of really drives home that this guy is just a complete piece of shit. I choose to believe, hopefully, that it doesn't necessarily work out for him at the end. I think they leave open the possibility of his golden ticket, but I do leave it ambiguous mm. enough to where maybe he fails because he doesn't have everything in place that he planned for, for this to kind of go off without a hitch. Oh, he's a complete F up. I mean, that's entirely true. So you're right. Yeah. The whole thing probably yeah. just blows up underneath him. Yeah. But I mean, as a piece of filmmaking and a piece of art that this guy set out to make i think it's incredibly well done and i think he executed on exactly what his envision was so i can't hold that against it i mean i'm with you i'm getting old enough and there's enough terrible shit in the world that i'm i get kind of i don't get the kind of visceral thrill of kind of watching these kind of gritty real life stories anymore because i've known people like this i've lived through stuff at least on the sidelines of of seeing these kinds of things happen so it's like i'm not that interested in watching it anymore but at the same time it is it is a good movie i can't really deny that so let me ask you matt suitcase pimp Howell, what are you gonna give red rocket as your score (laughs) um i think i'm gonna give it an a minus for what it is and i yeah i just don't but i don't think i'm ever gonna watch it again and if anybody said, hey, should I watch Red Rocket? I'd be like, you know, just be prepared, but it is it is well done for what it is. <laughs> yeah, uh, so A minus, huh? All right. I'm yeah. sitting on B again because I'm not sure yet. I keep going back and forth on okay. it. So I'm going to be, I'm going to go with just a B. I, at one point I had it an A minus, one point I had it at C. So I think that it's, I'm really, <laughs> I think it's, I, I, initially it was just my emotions were getting the best of me watching this thing which is yeah. of course exactly what baker's doing so i have to like you yeah. said i have to credit him so uh, but I'm, I'm sitting at a b for now i just i just don't think it's still even with all that i don't think it's as successful as tangerine i don't think it's as successful as florida project tangerine it was like a bolt of lightning out of the sky to me when i watched that thing and florida project is just wonderful mm. so uh it, yeah. but tangerine is much more in line with a red rocket than it is uh florida project so just prepare yeah. yourself when and if you do eventually catch up with it What are your thoughts on Red Rocket? It is available to stream now. I don't think it's on any of the services, but you can rent it at all your digital platforms. Yeah. Feedback at thefirstrun.com. All right, Matt, let's close out the big show and uh, continue our countdown of our 50 favorite films. Now it's going to be 40 through 31. Here's another one, Matt. Didn't quite make the list for me. The pitcher has went to the well once too often, friends. Oh, she'll come dragging her tail back home. She'll not be back. I reckon I'm safe in promising you that. Maybe she'll just run off on a spree. No, no. Well, there's no harm in hoping. There's no sense in it, neither. I figured something like that was brewing when she went to bed last night. How? Well, she tarried around in the kitchen after I'd gone up. And when I went downstairs to see what was wrong... What? Well, she'd found this jar of dandelion wine that the husband at Harper hid summers in the cellar. She was drinking. 
I tried to save her. I know you did, Mr. Powell. Oh, I know how hard you tried. But the devil wins sometimes. Yes, he does, Matt. That is, of course, a clip from The Night of the Hunter, Charles Lawton's only film he ever directed featuring Robert Mitchum as a pastor who may be hiding some secrets. Uh, A fantastic film, one of my favorites. Another film, too, that kind of has this weird dreamlike quality to it. Um, If you've never seen Night of the Hunter, folks, I cannot recommend it enough. I've bought that thing probably four times in physical media, and I just upgraded to the Blu-ray last year as one of the Criterion sales. So I was very happy with that purchase. All right, Matt, I guess, should I go first this week? I think it's my turn. My sure. number 40, okay. then, was one of the one of my favorite martial arts films of the past 20 years. One of the films, I think we've talked about it many times, and I think I've said this as my credit to it, is I would wa- watch it going, oh my God, you know, oh, ah, like I had these visceral reactions. Of course, I am talking about The Raid, which initially mm. we thought was that Dread had ripped this off, right? But we found out that, um, right. that Evans hit, Possibly yeah, because he had known around. about it or read the script for it, <laughs> perhaps ahead of time. Yeah. So, but it's about the uh, um, police officer who they go to him and a bunch of his companions go to raid there. Um, this this drug house, this apartment building that's basically a drug house, and with his gangs in it, and then they get sold out and trapped inside, and then they have to survive and try and escape. Uh, Eco Yuez is the first film I ever saw him in. But it is an unrelenting film. And if you like martial arts movies, it is brilliant, choreographed, some fantastic fight scenes. And it is just an experience, a visceral experience. So it's my 40. Yeah. I wish I could have put Dread somewhere on this because I prefer mm-hmm. Dread to the Raid. But man, both are really, really yeah, good. Dread's on my honorable mentions too. Yeah. All right. So my number 40 is, I think, one of my favorite, I think, I guess. One of my favorite traditional animated films. It is about a massive robot that falls to Mm. space during the height of the Cold War in the 50s. And without knowing who he is or what his purpose is, befriends a young boy. And um, it may be Vin Diesel's most best performance. I'm talking about uh, The Iron Giant, where it's just a slice of kind of innocence where this thing that was created probably for darker purposes is able to kind of go outside of what it is, what it was predestined to be and be something more and grow and um, kind of shines a light on kind of the stuff we're doing to each other even now. And like by now, I mean like literally right now in different parts that of the world. That is a fantastic pick, man. Honorable mention for me too, but Iron Giant is just a wonderful little film. So my number 39 is the only cheat I have in my entire list. Okay. Because I can't, I don't view this trilogy of films independently. I just don't. Okay. And that yeah. is the Lord of the Rings trilogy. I mm. think that uh, it's just a fantastic achievement in filmmaking, Peter Jackson's adaptation of the classic fantasy stories. And that 4K set, Matt, is a wonder. It is incredible. I don't know if you've picked that up by now, right? I know you had sit on it for a while. Oh, yeah. But when you watch, I watched yeah. that on my new TV. I watched the first film like a couple months ago. And it is, it's like watching it for the first time. It is so beautiful, that transfer. But the whole series, all three films, just wonderful, spellbinding entertainment. So um, Lord of the Rings trilogy, my only, I think, cheat on the list, 39. Yeah, that's, it is uh, one of my all-time favorites. We'll... We'll see it somewhere else later in the film, later in the list. Yeah. All right. So my number 39, I struggled with this because a lot of times I really do think this is my favorite version of the collaboration between Will Ferrell and Adam McKay. 
maybe a bit of a, uh, a sleeper compared to what people would choose. But at a joke per level, it's just it's just so funny and it's so ridiculous. I'm, of course, talking about Step Brothers mm. with uh, John C. Riley and Will Ferrell that play two 40-somethings who still live with their parents and uh, who get married to each other and they um, are forced to live together and kind of learn to deal with each other. Somehow still being 14 years old in the mind of, in the bodies of 40-year-old men. It's ridiculous. It's hilarious. It's incredibly quotable. And it really kind of brought together the the chemistry that is John C. Riley and Will Ferrell. Yeah, no, that is a, a great pick. I haven't watched that film, I think, since I lived in that Windsor Locks apartment. It's been a long since I watched that place. Okay. Watch that place. Watch, Man, watch that you're film. missing out. Man, I got to get in on that. Jesus. Ah, good times. All right. So then my number 38, Matt, it's the weirdest thing. It's one of the films, like Rope has this for me too. It's where I just get in this weird um, run where I watch it over and over and over again. And I just did. I watched it probably eight times in the last two weeks. I think it's it's good background entertainment. So if you're working or you're doing something, mm-hmm. it is perfect for that. And uh, Which I don't say that to diminish it, but that's James Foley's Glenn Gary Glenn Ross. The adaptation of the David okay. Mamet play featuring all-star casket Al Pacino, Jack Lemmon, Alec Baldwin, Ed Harris, Alan Arkin, Kevin Spacey. Uh-huh. And Jonathan Price. But it is so well written, but it is very much a bro movie. You know, I mean, it is, that's very sexist of me to say that, but it, it's just that it, it's exceptionally <laughs> vulgar with really fantastic performances by the cast. I think probably one of Jack Lemon's greatest performances in this film. And, but I just love the dialogue. Baldwin has that little role where he was nominated for an Academy Award for his, his uh, little opening spiel and uh, just, a great little ensemble piece, little chamber piece thing of this whole film. If you haven't seen Glengarry Glen Ross, it's profane as all hell, but it is just riveting, riveting stuff. So, and I watch it like, I don't know, all the time. Yeah, I, honestly, I, I think I'm, I saw Glengarry Glen Ross like one time. I've only, I think I've only ever watched it one time. And it was like one of these things where it's like, it's one of those movies you have to watch just to see. And it is great. Um, so maybe I'll have to go. catch up with it again. It's been a long time. All right, so my number, what are we at, 38? My number 38 is a little blast of sci-fi that I was not expecting. My esteemed co-host, Chris Pitascalzo, when this movie came out, gushed over Uh. it. He thought it was one of the best films he's seen in a long, long time. And it comes from uh, a woman named Petey James, um, who was known for writing detective novels, kind of these pulpy, or these kind of airport detective novels. And she just kind of comes out of nowhere writing this post-apocalyptic, uh, or at least apocalyptic, uh, sci-fi film. Their sci-fi novel got turned into a film by Alfonso Caron called Children of Men. It's the story of where humanity is unable to reproduce. There have been no new babies born in decades, and the world is in a slow, steady decline of, um, you know, hopelessness because the ranks are not being replenished. And they discover that there's one person who... This one woman has gotten pregnant, and it looks like she's going to bring her baby to term, which is a beacon of hope and a bargaining chip for the entire world. Beautifully shot, incredibly well acted, and just some of the most astounding steady cam single shot, or I will use air quote single shot um, scenes in, in film that you will see. Wow, Matt, that is an interesting, really interesting pick, because um, <laughs> I don't know how this happens. But yes, that's my 36, is uh, Karan's Children of Men. 30, or 37? I'm sorry. 37? No, I'm sorry. You're right. No, I... Yes, 37. 
I, my list is all okay. screwed up here. Yes, 37. So, um, okay. no, that's exactly it. It is, I, man, I was blown away by that film when I first watched it. I watched it again, I think mm. a year ago, and it still holds up. And like you said, that tracking shot at the end is, ins- it's insane. It's incredible. So, yeah. um, yeah. yeah, now you've basically said it all. So yeah, that is a, it was a good pick, man. Nice job. All right. Thanks. I'm probably going to steal Chris's thunder, although for another pick, but this may be, maybe a lot higher on his list. So it's no secret that I'm a huge Star Trek fan, but I'm more of a fan of the next generation. Whereas my esteemed co-host is a big fan of the wild card, James T. Kirk, who is a terrible officer. And I will not hear anybody tell me (laughs) otherwise. (laughs) Um, But the pinnacle of Star Trek movie dumb still is Horatio Hornblower in space with the wrath of Khan, um, where a villain from uh, Captain Kirk and the Enterprise's crew past comes back to haunt him. And I think what makes this so successful besides Ricardo Montalban's fake chest that he still claims to his dying day that was real was... Why you blowing uh, up my main spot like that? Because <laughs> I think it's just so ridiculous. Everybody's like, like, no, it was not real yet. Ricardo Montalban constantly constantly said yes no that is that is not true it is absolutely 100 percent me it's just because it's a focus story it's not kind of like um massive stakes as far as you know saving the federation or saving humanity or anything like that it's really just like two men and two crews kind of going at each other who both cause each other loss and it's which one's going to come out alive it's a fantastic piece of sci-fi yeah yeah <laughs> very weird wow okay so my number 36 then is a film that really caught me by surprise. Came out a few years ago, and I think it blew everybody away. I don't think anybody was expecting that for George Miller to return to this franchise after all this time and with a new Mad Max film. Now with Tom Hardy in the role, Charlize Theron as Furiosa, but Mad Max Fury Road is just a, a bravara piece of filmmaking. To see something like that pulled up. One of my favorite anecdotes, too, is that Hardy was interviewed afterwards like, yeah, Charlize and I were talking. We had no idea what was happening in this movie while we were making it. We were like, this thing is going to be a mess. It's going to be horrible. And he walked out of the screening. He's like, I get it. I get it. You know, and it is, it's perfect. I mean, it's just, it is just, just crazy science fiction action film that is, it's just the imagination involved in putting something like that on the screen it's just incredible. So uh, yeah, Fury Road's my thirty-six. Good pick. Um, my number thirty. My number thirty-five. Uh, then is a one of my favorite pieces of horror. This film traumatized me when I was five years old. My cousins, who were much older than me, two of them, went out and rented a, a, a videotape. They told me they were going to watch a scary movie, and I had to go lock myself in the bedroom and not come out until they were done watching it. Um, and I heard all of it through the through the door and it it traumatized me for so long that I avoided watching it until I was about 16 years old. And I'm talking about Toby Hooper's The Texas Chainsaw (laughs) Massacre, a film that is still to this day, incredibly effective, feels so real. And I think really is the pinnacle of not showing what exactly is happening and letting the audience fill in the worst of what's going on on screen to amazing effect. Yes. (laughs) I think this list is just going to be, I think, 80% of the same films, just in different places. I know. I actually, lists. it's not on my top 50. I, it's, I, don't, actually, I don't have a lot <laughs> no, of okay. horror uh, in my list at all, actually, which is kind of weird to uh, me. That's surprising. I know, surprising. but it's, yeah, yeah it's it in is. my honorable mentions. And it was kind of like, 
right outside. I mean, it was in when I first started to put this together, it was there. But I just think I don't yeah. revisit it enough for it to be a favorite because it's just so okay. intense an experience mm -hmm. that I just a lot yeah. of this was rewatchability for me is what comprised this list. Yeah. So my number thirty five then is a film I haven't rewatched for about two years now. Part of the issue is that there is no good transfer on physical media for this film. Unfortunately, mm -hmm. maybe someday mm -hmm. it'll happen, but I I don't know. And that is James Cameron's Terminator Two, the action sci fi mm -hmm. film that redefined a genre. And uh, yeah. is one of the best films of the 90s. It, just a roller coaster ride of a movie. Always entertaining. To this day, it's, this is one of the most preeminently watchable films ever made. I mean, it is, it's mm. almost a, unfortunately become a cliche and almost a joke at this point. But it is one of those movies. You can just pop it on whenever it is, and then you're going to get sucked into it, and you're going to finish watching it. And it is, it is, I think it's a classic of the genre. So it's my 35, T2. Yeah. Yeah, T2, I, I was right there with you when that film came out. I didn't put it on my list. And I, much like Ghostbusters, I think it suffers from the fact that I've seen it so, yeah. so many times. Like, I could almost, like, give you the script if you got me started. Just, like, go every single line in it. So I think that's the only reason I got it off my list, just because it's kind that's of fair. worn bare for me. All right, so my number 34 was on Chris's uh, bottom 10. I think one of the, I guess maybe the, one of the, the best? Yeah, I'm going to say the best modern Western mm -hmm. that's out there. I'm talking about Clint Eastwood's Return to the Western in Unforgiven. I think the way he's able to kind of subvert this genre that kind of made him a star and something that he lived in and is just so tied to is just absolutely perfect. And basically, much like we talked about when we just talked about Red Rocket... There's nobody in this that is a good yeah. person. I mean, it, it, maybe a couple are less bad than others, but um, it's just kind of what was out there and people were doing to survive. And honestly, even though he's an awful person, you still root for old uh, William Money at the end. Yeah, that's very true. That's a good pick, Matt. Like I said, it's a little lower on my list, but that's fine. Uh, my number 34 then, uh, I saw this film in the theater. And and I have a soft spot. I brought it up last week too, seeing movies in Cinema City in Hartford, the little art house for screener mm -hmm. that is long since gone. And they had a great little thing, I think I still have to this day, of a little explainer, a little kind of fold-out uh, card to help you understand the dialogue, some of the phrases in the film, because it was a film noir. It was a, uh, you have these cool yeah. terms from the 40s, you know, that, you know, Philip Marlowe and and uh, Hammer and Spillane, all that stuff would say. And that, of course, is Ryan Johnson's debut feature, Brick featuring Joseph Gordon-Levitt, where they set a film noir in present day in a high school. And again, just like Glengarry Glen Ross, uh, Brick is one of those films that I revisit every year. I'll watch it two to three times, like in a week or so, and then I kind of just move on. But every, it, it comes back to me every time. It is a brilliant little film that I just adore. I know it's not for everybody, but I'm, and I just finally, they put it on Blu-ray last year, which I picked up, though. I still fingers crossed hope for some kind of criterion release at some point, but yeah, Brick is my 34. I was surprised that I would expect that to be higher on your list. I know how much you love that movie, yep. but all right. So my number four 34 um, is uh, Pixar has put out a lot of good films and I think there are some that really hit hard. Like I really enjoyed soul. Um, I thought the kind of what it brought out there was fantastic, but as far as just kind of, Innocent rewatchability and just kind of 
good vibes and feelings that you get with it, plus little bits of just inspired filmmaking, I have to go with Wally. Um, the story about the little robot who is left behind to clean up the Earth and um, kind of gets sucked into what's left of of, Earth, of humanity and and um, how that implies that his relationship with another robot. It's a fantastic little film. It's a sweet little film, and I, I absolutely adore it. Wally is adorable. I do love it. That's a good pick. Uh, my number 33, then, was, at the time of its release, considered the scariest film of all time. Um, in fact, there was a funny little thing where the director refused to allow you in. He was like, it was this whole thing that you couldn't go into theater if the film had already started because you had to be <laughs> in from the very beginning. Okay. And it still holds up today, even though it's a shot in black and white. It has one of my favorite scores from Bernard Ehrman and featuring Janet Lee, Anthony Perkins. Of course, I'm talking about Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. Uh, just a incredible experience of a movie. And it starts off as this kind of, what, this heist film in a way. And then it just evolves into this terrifying horror film. Uh, with an incredible performance by Perkins and followed up by actually a couple really good sequels. Mm. Two and three are actually really solid if you haven't seen them. Four, but those first two are actually pretty good. But still, Psycho Man still holds up to this day. If you haven't seen it, you're just like, oh, it's an old black and white film. Trust me, it is just a disturbing little piece and it still works. So that's my 33. Very good. All right, my number 33 then is the more quotable Adam McKay, Will Ferrell joint. And of course, (laughs) I'm talking about Anchorman, a film that shockingly, I did not find funny the first time I saw it. I thought it was like, I was like, what is this? This is stupid. Really? This is not funny. And then I caught it again. And it's one of those rare films that gets better every single time I watch it. (laughs) And uh, I was completely wrong. uh, My first viewing of this as, uh, as a not good movie. It is an absolute stone cold classic of the comedy genre and it is a perfect little quip machine from beginning to end no anchorman's great not on my list but uh in fact i don't think i have any feral joints no comedies yeah very few comedies that's true very few comedies so then my 32 i'm continuing my my run here with alfred hitchcock and it's going to be rope Mm. considered by many to be lesser hitchcock it's just another, again, this, I guess I'm in the meat of that turn where these films I watch all the time. I just ro- watched Rope again last week. Right. Um, another film I watch a couple times a year, every year. It's about two people. It's basically based on the Leopold and Loeb case. These two kids who, two kids, college guys, who they've gra- graduated college, I should say. And they feel that they are morally superior mm. and that people are below them on a certain class level. You know, yeah. they're, they don't really deserve rights. And since they are of elevated class, they should be able to kill people without any consequence. Of course. So they kill their classmate. And then they invite his family over and his fiance for dinner. And then they serve the dinner buffet style over the trunk where they put his body. Oh. And then they invite their former headmaster who kind of gave them this idea of this Nietzsche-esque superiority complex that they have. Um, and that teacher is played by Jimmy Stewart. And Stewart figures out pretty quickly that something is going on. And one of the big contrivances, you could say, about the film, one of the really interesting things is that it looks like it's one continuous shot from beginning Mm -hmm. to end. There are about eight cuts in it, and you can see them if you're watching, but it's one of the really interesting things about it is it kind of looks like it just runs all the way through without any uh, stops. So um, I adore Rope as a piece of kind of experimental filmmaking. I know Matt's not a big fan of plays. And this is one of those that basically is, I think it started off as a play too, but one of the few films written by Hume Cronin, 
Okay. But uh, yeah, I adore Rope, so 32. Man, again, another film I expected, just having known you for so long, I expected it to be much higher on your list. So yeah, yeah. I'm very curious about your what's higher up on your list. Oh, it's all uh, lazy, cliched shit once we get into that top 10, top 20. <laughs> Um, so my my number 32 is uh, the first of one of my favorite sets of filmmakers, the first to appear on this list. It is The Big Lebowski by the Coen Brothers, uh, a filmmaking duo that I absolutely adore. It stars Jeff Bridges as this quintessential slacker who gets tied up with uh, circumstances outside of his control and a ludicrous heist gone wrong. You've got John Goodman at his insane best. You've got Julianne Moore just weirding it up. Um, you've got Philip Seymour Hoffman being a little troll that <laughs> exists on the side. Everything about it is just fantastic. It's it's a absurdist little piece of not laugh out loud comedy, but it's it is just it's amusing from beginning to end. That's good. It didn't make my cut. It was yeah. it's. I love it, but it's one of those things that I just don't watch it that often. Sure. I don't, sure. I don't know. Yeah, that's 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 good though. So then uh, to close it out for me, Matt, my number 31 is, I think, the best film Sergio Leone ever made, which is Once Upon a Time in the West. Okay. My all-time favorite Western, thanks to you. Mm-hmm. I had always been a fan of the Dollars Trilogy, but you'd said, actually, I think this is better. So I watched this and I felt, Matt, you know what? Matt is entirely right. The one time Claudine he's ever Cardinal. said it. I know, right? <laughs> So you have Claudia Cardinale, Henry Fonda, Jason Robarts, Charles Bronson. So Henry Fonda is kind of the enforcer of this guy who's trying to buy up all this land. And they kill these people on this farm one, and they try and pin it on this bandit Cheyenne that is Jason Robarts' character. Meanwhile, Bronson's character is tracking Henry Fonda's character, Frank, to get revenge for the death of his brother. And all three of these characters kind of come to a head as Cardinale is trying to basically hold on to her her life as the family she thought she was joining up to be was killed by Fonda's character. One of my favorite little tidbits is that Fonda was going to wear like brown contacts. Mm. And Leone said, no, no, no. We want those, we want those piercing blue eyes with yeah. the dirty, dusty face and the black outfit. And it was a departure too because Fonda had always played a good guy yeah. prior to that. And he is just this ruthless guy as Frank in this film. And features one of my favorite scores of all time from Ennio Morricone. Just a fantastic, beautiful, stunning film. Once Upon a Time in the West, my number 31. All right. Good pick. Good pick. All right. So my number 31 <laughs> then is uh, a film that threw, but really kind of blew this filmmaker wide open. I think a, a lot of people of my generation really got into film because of this movie. I think he had greater artistic um, achievements later that will probably appear or will appear on this list. But number 31 is uh, Quentin Tarantino's Pulp Fiction. Um, he did kind of splash onto the scene with Reservoir Dogs, but this one kind of just uh, put him on the map. A series of vignettes told through different uh, spatial of time, bringing back a kind of this gritty kind of 70s vibe to this crime story and... Just the pitter-patter data dialogue, the kind of affection for film, everything is there in this. And it just really made his career and elevated, revitalized some people's careers and uh, made the career of others. It is a fantastic piece of, of 90s crime cinema. And it's basically quintessential 90s uh, viewing. There you go. Mm-hmm. Interesting. <laughs> All right. So those are our list. It's 40 through 31, folks. Of uh, Matt and our favorite films of the, not of the year, of all time. Mm-hmm. What am I talking about? Yeah, what are you talking about? So we'll continue that next week as we get through, what, 30 through 21? Jesus. 
as we count down to episode 600. Next week, Matt, we're supposed to be discussing The Atom Project and Belfast. Okay. Uh, that is on the list, but the week after, I'm really excited. That's going to be Ty West's X, mm. which uh, could be quite the experience. I may actually, too, since we don't have a theatrical release next week, yeah. I may go see the Batman in IMAX. I saw it in Dolby. Okay. I may go see it in IMAX just to see what that experience is like as well. I saw it in IMAX because the Dolby times were inconvenient to me. Oh, yeah. interesting. All right. Yeah. In the meantime, check us out on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, Instagram. Do a search for The First Run. Scroll, scroll, scroll. Eventually, you will find us. Head over to Apple Podcasts and give us a review. It'll help other people find the show. And I guess, Matt, that's going to be it. So uh, everybody take care of yourselves. We love you very much. And we will see you soon. Now get the fuck out, you suitcase pimp. What'd you say? You heard me. Suitcase pimp. Say that shit again. Homeless suitcase pimp.